Shalom. Last week, we discussed the very, very complex and almost incomprehensible problem of anti-Semitism. The basically universal fact that wherever Jews have lived at any time and in any place and under any circumstances, there has been a significant phenomenon of those who have opposed us and even have hated us. And we pointed out that Chazal referred to this uh, phenomenon with the expression, Halachahi she'esab soneli Yaakov. And we also began to try to understand perhaps where it comes from. We described the very unique qualities that Am Yisrael has, qualities that really can't be explained. We're not a nation, we're not a religion. No matter what happens to us, we somehow always manage to survive, even though it's not even clear who we are or what we are. And we gave a hypothetical example of two Jews 200 years ago or so, who had absolutely nothing in common, not the same ancestry, they don't speak the same language, they don't wear the same clothes, and they don't observe necessarily the same religious laws or share the same beliefs, and yet somehow everybody understood that they were a different people. This, going back to what we said in the first uh, in the first podcast, this, I believe, is what Bilam ben Be'or meant when he said, Hein'am levadad yishkon uvagoyim lo yitchashav. There's something perhaps metaphysical, although with time we will look to the Torah in future podcasts and see that even if it's metaphysical, it's rational, it's explainable, and um, and it can be understood. But there's something that for now at least remains mystical uh, about us that makes us somehow eternally apart, eternally different. This expression, Hein Am Levadad Yishkon, is an expression that has uh, engendered a lot of strong reactions, particularly in modern times. It's an expression that has become familiar to Israelis of all religious uh, backgrounds uh, and is often used in our, in our daily discourse here in Israel in uh, not a very positive way. A lot of times you'll hear Israeli politicians, those who are arguing for whatever position they have, uh, that they believe will get us uh, greater acceptance in the world or uh, enable us to develop better relations with other nations, other countries, in the United Nations, with Americans, or anyone else, um, which, of course, are very important things. A lot of times you'll hear them say something like, Oh, They don't want to be... We don't want to be viewed that way. Um... Of course, as I pointed out in the first class, though, that statement was was issued by Bilam ben Be'or in something which the Torah calls a bracha. He wanted to curse, but the Torah says, V'yafoch lecha tabracha leklala. Hashem turned his brachot, his klalot into brachot, and therefore that's supposed to be a bracha. Uh, nevertheless, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, uh, former chief rabbi, of course, of the British Commonwealth, and a uh, very, very, very eloquent thinker, and uh, eloquent, eloquent speaker and writer, uh, in one of his books, a book called Future Tense, he describes a um, uh, sort of epiphany that he says he had. Uh, he describes a scene where he was having lunch on Shavuot one year in, in Yerushalayim with a number of distinguished people. And somebody who was, uh, he, he described as an Israeli diplomat, um, the conversation that Rabbi Sachs describes uh, involved people sort of bemoaning a lot of the opposition to Israel and these global anti-Semitism that was playing out at the time in the United Nations, the type of things that we spoke about uh, last week in the previous one. 
And uh, he says that this one of the people at the table, uh, an Israeli diplomat who was a, himself a religious man, uh, said, you know, it was always this way. And he quoted the lines from that pasuk, And I'll read now what Rabbi Sachs writes. It was, he said, referring to the Israeli diplomat, Israel's destiny to find itself alone. It was an honorable remark, but at that point I experienced what can only be described as an explosion of light in the mind. What makes you so sure that Bila meant those words as a blessing, I asked. Might it not be that he intended them as a curse? And he then goes to provide some textual arguments to try to suggest that perhaps it was a curse. He quotes a Gemara in Sanhedrin that I hope to return to in greater detail when we discuss Bilam and his Nivuot. But the Gemara in Sanhedrin, according to one opinion, does say that although the curses were turned to brachot, in the end most of them returned to being curses as well. And that would include this pasuk. And he then continues and writes, That, I concluded, was the perennial Jewish danger. If you define yourself as the people that dwells alone, that will be your fate. You will convince yourself that you have no friends, you are isolated, no one understands you, the world hates you. Your efforts at self-explanation will be half-hearted. Your expectations of winning allies will be low. You will not invest as much effort as others do to make your case in the audience chamber of the world. For inwardly you are convinced that all efforts will fail. You will have decided that this is the Jewish fate, that nothing can change. It was ever thus and always will be. Jews have enemies, I said, my passion spent. But we also have friends. And if we worked harder at it, we would have more. And he then goes on uh, to discuss two different models of looking at Am Yisrael, what he calls universalism versus particularism. Particularism. Uh, and he describes certain groups of Jews, uh, and we'll talk about this more in a few moments, who, who feel that we have to look at ourselves as completely part of the world around us, and others who think we have to look at ourselves as completely separate. And he argues, I think very convincingly, that, um, that in fact, I'll, I'll read it, uh, I'll read that paragraph as well. My argument is that this is not the choice. Judaism is both particularist and universalist. Abraham lived apart from his neighbors, but he fought for them, prayed for them, and engaged with them. Moses and the prophets saw Judaism as unique and as having a message for all humankind. The split between particularism and universalism, the dissociation of sensibilities in the mind of the modern Jew, is nothing less than a breakdown of traditional identity at the very time that the Jewish future and the world need Jews to be both. And therefore, I'm skipping a little bit, Jews have failed in their... A people that dwells alone is a people that most people will not wish to be part of. Who, given the choice, would confer on his or her children the fate of being a victim? And therefore, uh, he suggests that perhaps we should look upon the pasuk, Am Levadad Yishkon, as a curse. I'd like to look at it a little bit differently. Uh, perhaps we can accept Rabbi Sachs's point, especially in light of that Gemara in Sanhedrin, that it could be a curse, but undoubtedly it is also a bracha, because it is that phenomenon which has enabled us to survive, as we saw last week, and has enabled us to continue to exist and to be the people that we are, and it is that destiny that is playing out today in Medinat Yisrael, and that's also what we will have a chance to see, Bezrat Hashem, in future weeks. For now, though, we need to get a little bit of a deeper understanding of how this played out in history, particularly over the past 200 or 250 years or so. But let's go back first. Let's go back to ancient times. As we mentioned, in ancient times, Am Yisrael 
even until, let's say, the destruction of the second Beit HaMikdash, and even perhaps a little bit afterwards, Am Yisrael could be defined as a nation in the classic sense of the term. Last week we, we quoted from Webster's Dictionary even, what, what a nation is. And we were, we fit that this description, we were a people having a common origin, common ancestors, we lived in a geographic location, at least some of us, and we had a government of our own, and even when we lost our autonomy or our sovereignty, when we came, uh, became part of the Roman Empire, so then we were a nation that was ruled over as part of the Roman Empire, just like many other nations had been subjugated to Roman rule. It was an empire. So we were a nation that was subject to Roman rule. But that national existence came to an end approximately around the time of the destruction of the second Beit HaMikdash, perhaps in a more final sense with the um, with the repression of the Bar Kokhba rebellion, and with Am Yisrael then beginning a journey into exile that has resulted uh, in almost 2,000 years of, of diaspora, of Jews living, as we've mentioned already, on every, basically every country on earth. The great Tana Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, who himself lived through the Churban of Yerushalayim, understood in his deep wisdom that, first of all, something was going, was a, something dramatic had changed, even much more dramatic than what had changed with the destruction of the first Beit HaMikdash. And he understood that the Galut that was about to begin may be a very, very lengthy one. And he understood that Am Yisrael was going to need tools to handle that. In a certain sense, although the Torah never changes, our observance of Halakha was going to have to change, and we were going to have to learn to think of ourselves in different ways. No longer were we going to be a nation in its own land, with the, at least theoretical possibility of our own government, and with the Beit HaMikdash standing in the center as the focal point of our Avodat Hashem. In the distant future, Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai certainly knew that that will one day return. There'll be a Melech HaMashiach and there'll be a Beit HaMikdash Tlishi. But we have to get to that point. And therefore, he instituted all sorts of changes. First of all, in his generation, the, the rabbis instituted tfilot keneged korbanot, as the Gemara tells us in Masechet, in Masechet Brachot. And instead of bringing a korban twice a day in the Beit HaMikdash, every Jew would say tfilat shacharit in the morning, instead of the korban tamid shal shachar, and would say tfilat mincha in the afternoon, instead of the tamid shal ben harabayim. Our Batei Knesset, which was a concept that was just in its infancy, the earliest Batei Knesset had been built in the previous few decades, and originally probably weren't meant as places of tefillah. Their term, the name Beit Knesset means a place where people come together. And when there was a Beit Mikdash, there weren't organized tefillot, but now the Beit Knesset would have to become a central focus of every Jewish community, and would have to become, as the Gemara calls it, borrowing from uh, Pasuk in Yechezkel, a Mikdash Me'at. Every Every place where Am Yisrael went, they would have their little mini replacement of a Beit HaMikdash. Not really a replacement, chas Khalila, but something that could serve the function of a focal point of, of tefillah and of, and of avodat Hashem until such time as the Beit HaMikdash would be rebuilt. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai also instituted a number of takanot, zeichel mikdash, as we know from the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah and in Sukkah and other places, various Changes in halachic practice that were meant either to remind us of the way things were done when there was a Beit HaMikdash, or to prepare us for the possibility that Bezrat Hashem, the Beit HaMikdash, will be, will be rebuilt and will be ready for it, or to remind us that it's in a state of destruction so that we can mourn and, and realize what we're missing. And um, also at that time, a little bit before and a little bit after, the Chachamim instituted other takanot that were designed to make sure that even if we'd be living among the Goyim, that we wouldn't 
assimilate. We wouldn't become part of the goyim. Rules like bishule akum and pat akum preventing us from, or at least restricting our abilities to interact socially with them, limiting how much we're allowed to eat with them and things of that nature, and various other things that were designed to preserve us. And we took these laws and we went out to Galut with them. And indeed, our self-image changed. We stopped thinking of ourselves as a nation and the land, and we started thinking of ourselves as a nation, even though we didn't have a land. And that's what helped teach us uh, and helped emphasize in our own minds this metaphysical reality that we are Am Levadad Yishkon. And again, throughout all of history, until modern times at least, it was very clear, both to us and to our non-Jewish neighbors, that that's what we were. Until about 200, 250 years ago, all Jews, wherever they lived, lived in communities that were viewed by everyone as separate from the larger uh, society. In many cases, we had autonomy granted to us by the local rulers. They ruled over us and we had, we didn't have the same rights as, as the Christians or the Muslims among whom we lived. But, we did have our ability to run our own communities. We had Batei Din that had, that had uh, authority over the Jews. If two Jews had a, had a dispute and one Jew wanted to sue another over, let's say, a business dispute, they would go to a Jewish court and the Jewish court was a, was a Beitin that operated according to the laws of Halakha. And the Beitin had the powers of, of, uh, of enforcing, enforcing their rulings. All Jews kept halacha. There was no such thing as um, as a Jew declaring that he doesn't observe halacha. If a, if a Jew would try to open his business on Shabbat in a Jewish community, he would be excommunicated. Nobody would nobody would uh, patronize his his business for sure, and he would be basically driven out of the community completely. So the very day to day procedures of Jewish life made clear to everybody that we were not part of the societies among whom we lived. Everyone, Jew and non-Jew alike, understood this reality of Am Levadad Yishkon. As we said, the non-Jews oftentimes were very, very suspicious of us because of it. But the fact that it existed was something that everybody understood. All of that began to change, however, around 200, 250 years ago, let's say sometime towards the end of the 18th century uh, in Europe. The truth is, the changes had begun already earlier, Anyone familiar with European history knows that there was a Renaissance, there was a Protestant Reformation, there was an Enlightenment, Industrial Revolution already uh, by the end of the 18th century, and all of these dramatic upheavals changed the way people in Europe think or thought. And since the great majority of the Jews in the world at this time period lived in Europe, these changes had a profound impact on us, on the way others viewed us, and on the way we viewed ourselves. New ideas uh, came into the world. Ideas like rationalism, uh, humanism, ideas that place the human being and the individual at the center, secularism, the idea that perhaps people can have religion, but religion doesn't define their lives, secular nationalism, the idea that people who live in a certain country are a nation, and the question then came to be, how do we view the Jews who have lived in these countries, in many cases for well over a thousand years, but sort of everyone knew that they were somehow different. Democracy also began first as a theoretical concept, and then by the end of the 18th century, with the American Revolution and then the French Revolution, became an actual code of law that governed various countries where Jews lived. And suddenly you couldn't be viewed any longer as a member of a group. You had to have equal rights, the same as everyone else. But it wasn't clear to anyone at the beginning that these things should apply to Jews the same as others, because everyone knew that the Jews were somehow different. There's a term that was used in Europe in the 18th and 19th centuries 
a term that was used both by Jews and non-Jews. In German, it was called Der Judenfrage, and in English, the Jewish question, or the Jewish problem. This term is familiar to many of us in its most ominous implementation. Uh, we know that Adolf Hitler, who I spoke about last week, uh, spoke of the final solution to the Jewish question, or to the Jewish problem. But when he was using that terrible phrase, the final solution, the problem or the question that he sought to solve is one that had been the topic of the conversation both among Jews and among non-Jews for well over a hundred years at that point. And the question is, what is the place of a Jew in the modern world? Up until modern times, we said, people had different groups and the Jews were viewed as a subunit in society. Everybody understood that the Jews who lived in France were not really French, the Jews who lived in Germany were not really German, and the Jews who lived in Iraq or Morocco were not Iraqis or Moroccans. They were a separate group, a separate nation, if you will, even though, as we said, they had no land of their own and they didn't speak the same language as other Jews in other places and all those other things, everyone understood that that's what Jews were. But once the entire way of thinking in Europe broke down and was recreated in this different system of rationalism, humanism, and democracy, the question of how to view the Jews, are they Germans, are they French, are they something else, that question became very, very, very uh, prominent. And as I say, both Jews and non-Jews continue to ask these questions. Among the non-Jews, the question centered around whether or not the civil rights that were being offered to all people in democratic countries should apply to Jews. And in many parts of Europe, it wasn't clear. In France and in Germany, there were significant debates about this, uh, even after the French Revolution. But ultimately, this resulted in what became known as the emancipation of the Jews of Western Europe. Ultimately, as we know, the Jews in those countries were granted equal rights, uh, the same as everyone else. At least, officially, at least according to the law. But among the Jews, the question was, how do we react to this? How do we react to the possibility of emancipation and the offer of emancipation? And what does it mean for us to be Jews in a world where people are viewed as individuals? What does it mean to be living in one country um, and to be offered equal rights in that country and to still be a, be a Jew. What does that mean? And if you look at the way the Jews reacted in the already in the 18th century, and certainly in the 19th century, you can sketch out a number of different approaches that Jews took to answer this question. Um, one approach, which was taken not by any groups, but by individuals, was simply to try to stop being Jewish. Uh, either to completely uh, convert to Christianity and just give up your Jewish identity and adopt a non-Jewish one. And there were many Jews in Western Europe in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries who did exactly that. Or to simply become secular, to just stop observing any, any religion whatsoever and to just define oneself as a human being who lives in whatever country uh, they live. Perhaps the first to do such a thing was Baruch Spinoza, already in the 17th century who was excommunicated from the Jewish community and lived his life as a secular person, eventually buried in a Christian cemetery, but I don't believe ever ever adopted the Christian faith either. And for the first time, really, in, in all of history, such a thing was possible. And we definitely have a phenomenon of Jews simply walking away from the Jewish people during this time. Later on in Eastern Europe, some of this phenomenon played out in terms of Jews creating or becoming involved in new movements that sought to completely redefine all of human society, most importantly socialism, Marxism, and later on communism. And we know that Jews were among the leaders of many of those movements, precisely because 
I think that was part of uh, the way of thinking of what we're going to do. We're going to simply redefine human society in such a way that there's no such thing any longer as uh, as the Jewish people, and the Jews will become the leaders of this new universalistic movement. There were others, though, who, while they did want to adapt and create a methodology by which Jews could fully participate and be considered full members of the society around them, didn't want to give up their Jewish identity entirely, wanted to somehow try to do both, try to maintain the concept of being being Jewish, being part of Am Yisrael, although they would drop the word Am very quickly, and uh, and simply maintain that while also being part, completely part of the country in which they lived. And there were a number of movements that talked about this, chiefly the Haskalah, certain elements within the Haskalah, both in Eastern and Western Europe, and most importantly, Reform Judaism. Reform Judaism, which was born in Germany in the 19th century and later took root even more significantly in the United States, Many people today don't realize this because Reform Judaism has changed dramatically, and that's not this is not what Reform Judaism is about today. But in its in its earliest period, a large part of what Reform Judaism was about was trying to redefine Judaism as a religion, the same way that there is Christianity and there is other religions in the world. Jews can be can define their Judaism simply as their religion. So, for example, one can be a German who's a Protestant. And one can be a German who's a Jew, or sometimes they didn't even use the word Jew, they would use words like Israelite, or Mosaic, as in the follower of the Torah of Moshe. This is our religion, um, but we are not in any way uh, a nation, or we're not, we're not a group of our own. Uh, of course, this necessitated certain changes uh, in halacha, for sure, and even in fundamental concepts of Jewish belief. They removed from the Sidur any reference to returning to Eretz Yisrael, any reference to Korbanot, and they um, also made many other changes in halacha. But the fundamental purpose, at least in the beginning, was to try to redefine what it meant to be Jewish in such a way that this contradiction wouldn't exist. And perhaps the clearest expression of this uh, is from a document from the United States from the late 19th century. In 1885, the Reform Movement in the United States met in Pittsburgh and adopted a, a resolution that they called the Pittsburgh Platform. And let me read you a key um, a key clause from that document. This is the official position of the American Reform, American Movement of Reform Judaism in 1885, the Pittsburgh Platform. It says, in part, we recognize in the modern era of universal culture of heart and intellect the approaching of the realization of Israel's great messianic hope for the establishment of the kingdom of truth, justice, and peace among In other words, what they're saying is uh, we want to maintain the continuity of our tradition. We have these prophets, Yeshayahu and and uh, and Yechezkel and others, who spoke about a future time when the world will be at peace and there will be um, a, a, a perfect human society. We adopt that and we embrace that, but we no longer can see it the same way we used to. And the the, the statement continues: We consider ourselves no longer a nation but a religious community, and therefore expect neither a return to Palestine, nor a sacrificial worship under the sons of Aaron, nor the restoration of any of the laws concerning the Jewish state. And in, in other documents that, uh, that the Reform Movement published a little bit later on, they stated explicitly that although they believe in, in truth and in justice and in peace, and they're committed to helping any people anywhere that are oppressed, 
They don't feel any particular commitment to Jews in another country because any more than they would feel to any other person. Because in fact, if they are American Jews or German Jews, then the Jews in France are, are, are members of a different nation. And although they share the same religion, and although they want to help all people who are in trouble, they don't consider those Jews to be their brothers. They are Americans, or they are Germans. And those people, the same way a Protestant in England would view a Protestant in Germany as a person who shares the same religion, but is a member of a different nation, so the Reform Movement tried to redefine what it meant uh, to be Jewish. The problem, ultimately, is that these types of uh, ideas simply didn't work. And this is something that Theodore Herzl, who himself, and we'll talk about Theodore Herzl in next week's podcast, Theodore Herzl was a person who originally embraced ideas similar to these. He wasn't a Reformed Jew, he was a secular Jew. But he very much had an assimilationist attitude in his early years. And what changed his mind was, I mentioned this I believe last week as well, was witnessing the trial of Alfred Dreyfus and seeing a person who had devoted himself to his country being simply simply uh, rejected completely uh, and, and destroyed because he was a Jew. And um, later on, if that wasn't enough, uh, ultimately the Holocaust, I think, convinced many more Jews that ultimately existing uh, as equal citizens in a, uh, in a non-Jewish society is simply not viable. This attitude still persists to this day in many places, particularly in America, but I think at least that history has shown that ultimately it's not viable. What other options are there? Among the great Gedoli Yisrael of that time, um, there are at least two great leaders in the 19th century who grappled with this issue. One of them is the Khatam Sofer, who perhaps could be viewed in a certain sense as the father of what we call today, um, what we call today Haredi Judaism. Khatam Sofer, in his famously witty adaptation of a halachic phrase, said, Hachadash Asur Torah, all, all innovations are wrong, and we have to simply, even if even if the Goyim have torn down the ghetto walls and have emancipated us and have offered us to be equal citizens in their societies, the Khatam Sofer basically advocated the creation of a voluntary ghetto, a psychological ghetto, and encouraged Jews to continue to speak in Yiddish and to avoid as much as possible secular studies and secular uh, knowledge and involvement in the non-Jewish world, uh, encouraged Jews to dress in clothing that marked them apart from the rest of society, and as much as possible sought to create an insular community that basically attempted to maintain what we had had in pre-modern times, to, to tell ourselves and everyone else that no, we're not part of the society around us. We're not German, we're not French, we're not really American, we are our own insular group. That is it also a phenomenon that certainly still exists, even, even here in Israel, and certainly in other countries, but I think also, uh, today's Haredi communities are very different than what the Khatam Sofer envisioned. It's not really possible anymore to keep yourself as a, as a closely knit and isolated group. So that method, I don't think really works as well either. And then of course there was Rav Shimshon of Hirsch, who adopted, adopted a philosophy that some view as the precursor of what became known as modern orthodoxy. His phrase was, or his slogan was Torah im derech eretz. And our first tried to create a philosophy which acknowledged that, that Am Yisrael is unique, and uh, although he didn't use this phrase to the best of my knowledge in this context, but acknowledged the reality of Am Levadad Yishkon, and said that that precisely is what allows us 
to be part of the societies in which we live. And let me read you a short, a short keta from Rav Shem Shem Hirsch. This is from a book known as The 19 Letters, a not-so-well-known book that he wrote before his magnum opus on philosophy, which is called Choreb. This was sort of a, a prelude to that, The 19 Letters. And I'll just read you this short, this short selection. He writes, To be pushed back and limited upon the path of life is not an essential condition of Galut, Israel's exile among the nations, but on the contrary, it is our duty to join ourselves as closely as possible to the state which receives us into its midst, to, propo- to promote its welfare and not to consider our, well- our well-being as in any way separate from that of the state to which we belong. This close connection with all states is in no wise in contradiction to the spirit of Judaism. For the former independent state life of Israel was not even then the essence or purpose of our national existence. It was only a means of fulfilling our spiritual mission. In other words, in order to try to make this work, Rav Hirsch downplays the significance of what we had in ancient times. Once upon a time, we were we were a nation with our land. But he continues and says, land and soil were never Israel's bond of union but only the common task of the Torah. Therefore, it still forms a united body, though separated from the national soil. Nor does this unity lose its reality, though Israel accept everywhere the citizenship of the nations amongst which it is dispersed. This coherence of sympathy, this spiritual union, which may be designated by the Hebrew terms Am and Goy, but not by the expression nation, unless we are to separate that term from the concept of common territory and political power. He's trying to claim that the Hebrew words Am and Goy mean something different than the modern term nation. That is the only communal band that we possess or ever expect to possess until the great day shall arrive when the Almighty shall see fit in His inscrutable wisdom to unite again His scattered servants in one land. And the Torah shall be the guiding principles of a state and exemplar of the meaning of divine revelation and the mission of humanity. On account of this purely spiritual nature of the national character of Israel, it is capable of the most intimate union with states. So, Rav Hirsch claimed that one can essentially have one's cake and eat it too. Uh, on the one hand, he shared almost with Reform Judaism, which was which were his greatest opponents. He shared with them the idea that one can integrate completely into the country in which one lives. And in Rav Hirsch's community, they had a school that taught secular subjects fully. And Rav Hirsch himself spoke in German and wrote in German and wore clothing himself that were very similar to the clothes worn by Protestant ministers at the time ministers at the time, and and he encouraged the people in his community to integrate socially and intellectually with the world around them, and yet to maintain steadfast commitment to halakha, and he felt that such a thing was possible. Rav Hirsch, when, when, when confronted with the emergence of what would later become the Zionist movement, was very much opposed to it. We were a nation once upon a time, in ancient times. In Yemot HaMashiach, we'll be a nation again, but that was never what it was really all about, and that's certainly not what it's about now. For now, we have to be Germans, or French, or Americans, or whatever we are, and at the same time, simultaneously, we have to be Jews in the full sense of the term. Rav Hirsch believed that this was possible. Next week, we'll talk about what history had to say about Rav Hirsch's idea, and we'll talk about one other great movement that arose in the Jewish people at this time, and that's a movement called Zionism, a movement that completely changed the history of Am Yisrael and that has a lot to do with the topic that we're trying to understand.